2: Find out more by going to www.IntelligenceSquared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, producer here at Intelligence Squared. For this week's episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast, we were joined by Kamal Ahmed, the editorial director and former economics editor at the BBC. He was in conversation with Razia Iqbal, the BBC News presenter, in a fascinating discussion about race, identity and prejudice in modern day Britain. It was a really interesting conversation and I hope you will all enjoy. And to all of our listeners, we would really appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. It makes the podcast a lot easier to find and it lets us know what you, the listeners, think of the show. Thank you so much.
3: Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. I'm a presenter at BBC News. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here today with Kamal Ahmed, editorial director and former economics editor at the BBC, and he's the author of The Life and Times of a Very British Man. Hello, Kamal. Razia, hello. Tell me why you chose to write this book.
1: There was quite an obvious genesis, to be frank. Um, Ten years ago, Barack Obama was um, elected president of the United States. And for anyone, frankly, who wasn't white, that was a huge moment, wherever you lived in the world. And although, of course, the significance of being the first black president was the important thing, for me, there was something else. And that comes back to my own heritage. Um, uh, My father is dead now, sadly, but my father is from Sudan, black, African. Barack Obama's father was from Kenya, black African. My mother is white and English, and Barack Obama's mother was white and American. So to me, an important, very important thing about the the new president in 2008 was that he was mixed race, and I am mixed race. And I think for many of us who have Struggled is too strong a word. For many of us who've had the, the issue of dual identity sort of stamped within them, it was a big moment. And I wrote a piece about it for The Observer, about this notion that Barack Obama had, had given me permission to be both black and white. And it was a nod to my mother, really, and my, my English heritage as much as my Sudanese heritage. And I was quite surprised by the reaction we got at the paper from that article not because it was a particularly smart piece, I'm not, I'm not sure it was actually, but that lots of people seem to take something from it. Lots of um, uh, uh, Asian and black readers took from it the notion of otherness, of feeling other in your own country, as I have sometimes done. And lots of white readers, interestingly, took from it the idea that we can have many types of identity. And you know, James Baldwin famously talked about the web of ambiguity that we live with. And I think it just struck a chord. And I suppose from that, I was fortunate enough to strike a chord in some publishers', people, publisher's <laughs> minds as well. Um, and luckily enough, I was given the opportunity to, 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 to write it down, so to speak, you know, a bit of my story, a bit of the story of Britain and, and Identity.
3: It's interesting that you quote Baldwin because the, the person that I was thinking of much more when I was reading this book was uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, you know, American thinker, scholar. And, and he talked a lot about double consciousness, this notion of black people who felt uh, a, a kind of duality, a two-ness in a dark body. And, and you make it quite clear in the title of your book where your allegiance lies. And I'm interested to find out whether you knew that that's what was going to be the outcome of this book, that your loyalty was very firmly going to be with Britain and not Sudan?
1: I've always been very proud of being British, which I think a lot of people of my generation, who are not white but were born here, feel. Uh, we feel that we were, we were given, and we were, this is not in the past tense, we, we have been given great opportunities living In Britain. I wouldn't quite describe it as my loyalties are to Britain rather than Sudan. I think that um, I understood through the writing of the book that I am very British. And it was going to Sudan for the first time as part of writing the book with my children. I have two children, 18 and 14, and we went together, the three of us, uh, to Sudan to meet my family there, many of whom I met for the first time. I also met the the man I was named after, my father's best friend, Kamal, uh, which was a very emotional moment. So it was about accepting my Sudanese uh, past and the Sudanese part of me, but realising that actually Britain was my home, and that I was British, and as British as anyone else. Um, uh, in that, there were striking contrasts about being in Sudan, which revealed to me that I wasn't Sudanese, and that sort of going home narrative, which so many of us are told talk talk about. Um, home was Britain.
3: I, I, I have to admit to you that there was a moment when I read your book when I almost cried. I was on the verge of tears. And and it was the line that I read, which was when you went to Sudan and your reflections of of, uh, your engagement with with your father's country. I'm not part British and part Sudanese. I'm wholly British with a Sudanese background. And I struggled with that because I thought, why can't you be both?
1: I think the idea. So I was brought up by my mother. My mother and father split up when I was quite young. My father was quite a distant character through many, through large parts of my life, and I brought, I was brought up in a in a in a very traditional English uh, environment. It was church at the weekends on Sundays. It was National Trust houses. It was high tea at five o'clock with hams and cheeses and. Um, Uh, salad and it was a very English way and it really has seeped into my DNA and I suppose for me it wasn't about a duality which was equal half half it was about yes there is a duality there and I agree with you that, that that's an important part of who I am but I realized that what I didn't want to do was divorce my identity from the country I grew up in and I call home and I am proud to call home. And I suppose that was what I was trying to get across, that, yes, you can be, your heritage can be of many different parts, but you can still be British. And I suppose it's that idea that sometimes there seems to be almost a conflict, as if one can only win at the expense of the other. And I think I was trying to get across that Britishness means a dual heritage often, a triple heritage. And also not just in ethnicity. It means that we are all other in some way, and that might be ethnicity, but it might be gender, it might be sexuality, it might be around disability. It can be around many things, and it it does not make you less British. I think that was the point I was trying to get across. But I do hear your challenge. I hope people don't take from it that in any way I'm rejecting... Um, uh, part of me, the Sudanese part of me, because i that is not what i was uh, I was attempting to do but i was attempting to say that this still can come under a proudly british banner
3: i mean among the among the most moving things in the book is is quite clearly a, a tribute to your mother and in in many ways when you say we're all other in some way she was too you know because she made this very very distinctive decision to do something in the 1960s which was unusual rare She married an African man. She fell in love with him and she married him. So that comes across in a really big way. But what also comes across is the kind of just under the surface awareness of your English family of race. With your grandfather, your white grandfather saying, play the white man when you're playing cards with him. You know, there are things like that that are just there, bubbling under the surface.
1: And I think um, when you're very young, you don't really notice them. It's been an oddly emotional journey writing the book because I have had to dig into things I have not thought about for 30, 40 years. And... You know, my grandparents were wonderful people. They loved me unconditionally and I never had any issue around was I different, was somehow, um, were my family rejecting me in any way. I never had any issues like that. But nevertheless, and I'm sure this might speak to many mixed-race people in Britain who obviously were mixed-race children, that there are those little hurts and slights that just happen And that you deal with in a little sort of bag of hurts and slights that you just have as part of your kind of... what you consider to be a pretty ordinary life journey. This is no misery memoir, I hope. It's not a complaint at all, but it's just an explanation that when you weren't, and in the 70s and 80s, this was a really significant part of the majority, the white majority, you were clearly not. You were marked out literally by the colour of your skin. Um, that these things happen to you and that that gives you a a perspective on on the country you live in, which is very different from um, uh, somebody who grew up as a sort of white member of of society. Now, lots of these things have changed over the the decades that I've been alive, the many decades that I've been alive. Many (laughs) of these things have changed, but I wanted to tell a story of I'm 50 now, of that generation who grew up in the 70s and 80s, when the confidence with which many of us now talk about identity, or many people do, and my children do, um, simply wasn't there.
3: And the mother of your children, who is of Anglo-Irish background, so your children, of course, have a have a different uh, different ethnicity and a makeup, and the way in which they navigate their place in 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 the world is different again. But let's go back to the 1970s. I'm a little bit older than you, but pretty much the cultural frame of reference in this book is is mine too, um, and I grew up in 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 London, in South London, so not that dissimilar. But the the, the need to really belong at school is quite clear for for children, right? And it's clear in this in this book where you you are trying very hard to fit in both amongst white people, white kids and black kids. And and I I have to say I was shocked to read that you had put on an exercise book in an attempt to be on the side of white people, you know, kick the packies out, keep Britain tidy. And even just to read that word for me in a book, it it's still Startles, and, and I, I wonder how you. I mean, you reflect on it, but when you when you think about using the word, I wonder what what goes through your mind, given what you were trying to do at the time.
1: I thought really carefully about that, um, and I hope in the context of the book it is handled with a degree of sensitivity. I think what I was trying to do there, and it's probably one of the hardest bits I had to write, that we all have. Um, prejudice to deal with. We all need to think about ourselves and when we are thinking about the problems that others have caused us, we need to also think about the problems we have caused. And I think that was a very hard thing to admit to. Um, uh, and you're quite right to say it was. it's quite stark and quite startling and something that I am... Um, I revealed it to show that we all have our problems in these areas and that was that notion of you kick down to try and show to the people above you that you're kind of one of them in some way and it seems terrible now thinking about it i feel quite emotional thinking back to that thing you know my closest friends were pakistani bangladeshi and indian heritage kids these are my mates but i did that to sh- it was a it was a confidence thing it was a lack of confidence thing frankly and I think it just shows the swirling um, uh, world that you lived in that led to these wrong and odd manifestations. And I remember my mother being shocked when she saw it and talking to me um, about it, and me sort of understanding, giving some context. But as I say, we didn't have the language or the vocabulary or the sophistication to be able to talk about these things. And I think that when you feel that you are in danger, quite genuinely, of being sent home, and that was a big debate in 70s and 80s Britain, that genuinely you would send brown people home, you were scared to be associated with brown people. You wanted to belong. I mean, there's a story in the book about me calling myself Neil. You know, Neil is not my name. I'm sure there are many wonderful people called Neil. In fact, one of my best friends is called Neil.
3: I'm
2: amazed uh, you chose Neil, I frankly. know,
1: <laughs> But you chose the most boring, almost literally <laughs> vanilla name you could think of. I had a friend from um, uh, uh, the Indian Punjab, and his name was Tony. Now, clearly his name wasn't Tony. I had a friend uh, from Thailand who was called Perry, and his name wasn't Perry. Not really. But that's – and it's, it's funny, isn't it, that we went for such – straightforward, you know, I, I don't want to say boring, nothing vo- boring about Neil, but they were so straightforward, so un- ex- as as unexotic as we could imagine. And it was because you didn't want the camel, if you got the hump, ha, ha, ha. You didn't want the aggression that saying your name was Kamal would would bring. You didn't want the fights, the the, the issues. You just wanted to keep your head down, get on with life, and keep life simple and be expected. Lenny Henry t- t- tells a t- t- very funny joke, you know, he wishes someone had given him a £1,000 to go home because that would have more than covered his bus fare to Dudley. <laughs> I came from Ridley Avenue, West Ealing, West London. That was my home. But these people were saying to me, yeah, we might tap you on the shoulder and send you back to a country you've never been back to, which in the textbooks and in the school lessons... I thought was a a continent full of mud huts and poverty and war. And that was kind of it. Whereas Britain invented everything, had kings and queens and ran the world. And so boy, I want to choose Britain out of those two. So of course, it's not until you learn. And with that similar phrase that I've used, it's not until you learn about who you are, who your friends are, that you actually understand the hurt that can be created with that what i and i can't repeat it now but that that what i wrote on that exercise book it,
3: it it's it's interesting because all of those people who were your contemporaries are all 50 now and they are part of this country you are part of this country and and yet something has shifted in your mind that has made you feel entirely or much more at ease in the same country that you occupy with those people who persecuted you when you were very young. And I'm interested in that.
1: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of this is about, and maybe this is the journey that many of us have. As you get older, you frankly have more experience of life. Um, you go through traumas of many different types um, uh, and you gain perspective. And also the key for me was, was accepting who I am. I think a lot of my generation for a long time were struggling to be accepted by what they thought was their country rather than thinking, this is my country, you should accept me. And I think that is part of the journey, I hope, of growing up. It's part of the journey of the book. Uh, It's a story about accepting who you are and settling on uh, the idea that, as I say, being British... I'm as much British as anyone else on this island of immigrants. Ultimately, we're all immigrants if we dig back far enough. And so it's that acceptance story which is, which is part of it. And it's quite an optimistic story. I think um, the book is not a bleak book, I hope. It does tell some difficult stories, of, as you've touched on. Um, but also it's an optimistic book. It talks a lot about the generosity of conversation, the need for conversation, And also, I think, in a a sense, the the country is is at a pivotal point in its in its story. Um, I always thought, if you you know, I, I went, I started work in the early 1990s, just after the last recession before the financial crisis of 2008, and that period from the early 1990s to 2008 was a pretty benign one, and all the all the statistics, all the figures revealed that we were becoming more at ease with the notion of race. I remember standing with a with another father, a white father who's a friend, and our boys played rugby together, and him saying, you know, by the time our kids are adults, there will be no racism. And sort of slightly agreeing with that, this was a few years ago, but I think that some of that idea is slightly broken down, I think... The financial crisis created all sorts of tensions, ideas of otherness, who to blame, who can we blame for what's going on? And the notion of otherness and tribe and the need to make other people enemies has slightly come back into our debate, and it's a bit about that.
3: But even before you get to this place where you think people were... Assuming that we were in a kind of post-racial society, or getting there, or yeah, getting getting there, there that, moving yeah, towards yeah, it, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the early nineteen nineties, you know, that's when Stephen Lawrence was murdered, and the, you know that was nineteen ninety three. So, you know, absolutely, at the heart of what was happening in this country was so potent and difficult, and and I'm, I'm not convinced that we. Are entirely at ease. I, I, I'm interested in your in your book where you talk about the, the the way in which we have to try and listen to the other, and I, I'm really intrigued by that. You you know you quote a couple of times the um, the the philosopher from the 1950s, um, Gordon, Allport. Gordon Gordon Allport, yeah. right? So so he's got this idea, this contact theory idea of um, the, the 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 need to to not, not shout at other people, to not attack them, but to, to have a sense that if you, the more you know people who are not like you, the more likely it is that you will engage and be sympathetic and empathetic. And, and I think against even the legacy of the Stephen Lawrence murder, it, it, it feels incredibly hard for a lot of people who are not necessarily as privileged as you or I to, to do that. And I, I wonder who you're writing the book for.
1: I agree with so much of what you've said, um, and I do. I devote quite a lot of time to Stephen Lawrence murder, and the book is certainly not Panglossian. Um, it it is that through the 1990s, in aggregate, um, uh, signals of discrimination seem to fall, or the the notion of. Who you might marry, who you'd be worried about living next door to, um, feeling socially at ease with people from different cultures in aggregate. But of course, things like um, uh, Stephen Lawrence's murder, um, Anthony Walker, um, Bijan Ibrahimi. I go through a lot of the horrors, the absolute horrors, which cannot be forgiven. And it's not about this country saying we've moved on and certainly nowhere near Um, a post-racial world nowhere near but I think there was a notion of almost automatic progression with these horrible twists in the in, in a road of progression I think that's what I was trying what I'm trying to argue and that notion of progression I think has now been questioned more fundamentally than it certainly was in the 1990s but you are right and um I go back and I speak to um, a, a school friend who I' have not spoken to for thirty years, Andy Sampson, who had two Bayesian parents, and he reveals much more as you 're saying, Razia for a lot of people, it was much more horrific than my life, and you 're absolutely right, I do say in the book, I need to check my privileges. I need to think about i was my mother was very engaged in my education, she had time to do that, she knew the system, she was an English teacher, she was from England, she was white. <laughs> and that gave me great advantage so i am not this is a memoir um about my experience and my thoughts from that experience rather than a blueprint for everybody and i think you're absolutely right to to challenge and i hope in the book i have challenged myself about well if we could if we could just kind of hold hands and sing kumbaya everything would be okay <laughs> i'm not saying that and i hope that i've done I, I, as I say, I was I, I covered the Stephen Lawrence case for the I used to work at the Guardian newspaper and I covered that case and it was horrific seeing the effect on Doreen and Neville Lawrence and writing about that and writing about how often we've been around this circuit, you know how many times do we have to go around this circuit before someone says can we stop doing this please? And as I say, I go through um, Stephen Lawrence, Anthony Walker, Bijan Ebrahimi, These were so similar in the way they happened and the institutional response to them. Um, And so clearly there are structural, big structural issues. Gordon Allport said, though, that no person um, can be changed who feels themselves under attack. So I suppose the the point I make, which maybe is the more controversial point, is that I'm not talking about extremists here on on any side of this debate. This is not a book for extremists, but this is a book where I think we do need to push ourselves to understand where the other side is coming from, not the other extremist side, but the other side who might feel uneasy that their country has changed a lot, who might feel that somehow immigration, not race-based immigration, but immigration of whatever kind, has somehow undercut their lives. They're a plasterer from Essex. And suddenly someone's come here who can do the job for half the money, they think. And that's the problem. The problem is not the broader economy. It's that plasterer from Eastern Europe. He's my, he's my problem. And I think that it is better to engage with people who feel like that and try and converse with them than it is to have a kind of bullhorn to bullhorn battle about who is right. And I suppose that's where my, my argument is different no more legitimate, but, but, but different from, you know, Rennie edo Lodge's great book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which, of course, I've read. It is fantastic. It makes a different type of argument. And I think both hopefully help us have a debate about identity.
0: The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super Super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud. You see, no hardware needed, so you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over thirty-seven thousand companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. Netsuite.com/squared.
2: If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast. And now back to the show.
3: I'm here with Kamal Ahmed. We're talking about his book, The Life and Times of a Very British Man. Uh, Kamal, this notion of listening to the other intrigues me because I wonder to what extent the other that you're talking about uh, in this case is the majority the people, we're talking about white people and trying to understand their perspective and their fears. I wonder to what extent you think that white people have listened to minorities?
1: (laughs) That's a very good question. I think some have and some haven't. I think as ever when you try and categorise people by skin colour or cultural background, you get into problems. There's no there's no um uh you know broad catch all way you can describe white people. My mother's white. She's very different from a lot of white people. So I wouldn't quite look at it in that way. Um I, I can I, I know of course un, under your question is the very good point that many uh people, um you know black and Asian people in Britain would say Why should we hold out the hand of friendship when they never have to us? I think that's a bit binary, I suppose, is my argument, that there are many white people who, if they felt listened to, might engage more. People who feel under attack, I do think, find it difficult to understand where the attack is coming from, even though that attack might be completely and utterly legitimate, which it is in many cases. But by trying to understand that otherness exists and also that other people make, can make me feel uncomfortable. I think the, I talk about our very Britishness makes us not talk about our very Britishness. We, these are emotional arguments. Identity is an emotional issue. And we find it difficult when the conversation becomes uncomfortable. And so we, 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 we shy away from it. And I think that's part of our problem part of our problem is shying away from having these conversations with people who make us feel uncomfortable. Because if we don't do that, I think we are not going to make the progress we could do.
3: I I wonder also though it, I I don't disagree with anything that that you've just said, but I also wonder that there's a there's a moment in the book where you recount an an encounter with uh, a man in a park. You're with your son, and you think he recognises you as a personality on television, but in fact he is uh, he's doing he's giving you a Nazi salute. In the book, you say. Um, that you don't think it represents anything very much, not anything very much that I would consider British. I I was astonished by that as a reflection because it was real. He did it. He did it in a London park. It's something. And, And the idea that it doesn't represent anything very much that is British struck me as a denial that there is underneath... I don't know how many people, but some people, this man in particular, a visceral animus towards a person that he either fears, is angry with. Whatever the reasons are, he thinks it's perfectly OK to invoke a, a fascistic salute. And, and I wondered why you thought that there was nothing British about it.
1: Nothing very British. He, these people are not going to hijack my country. I think that was the point I was trying to make, that I am not going to be defined by the extremist and I'm not going to let them define my country. And I think my son's response was instructive. (laughs) He genuinely laughed and he said he he laughed because he couldn't understand the madness of what that man had done. It didn't mean anything to him in terms of the country he knows. Now... Did it hurt you?
3: Did it hurt you? It did.
1: It did. It upset me. But I think this the book is about not allowing the extremes to hijack what is good about Britain. And I think what is good about Britain over the past... Fi- or the 50 years that I've been alive is that it has been a journey. Now, Razia, when I was young, I had National Front people marching almost down the end of my street every weekend. I had people selling fascist newspapers on street corners every weekend at football matches. I couldn't go to football, even though I wanted to, because of the racism, the the, the the Zeke Hall salutes, all the time. And I think that, in that era, did sum up a sort of Britain that actually really existed. I think now, the extremes might be louder, but I don't believe they represent our country in a way that I think there was more of a representation of that in the 70s. You are right, though, to test me and to test the... Is that argument true if that had happened in a different part of London to someone not as privileged as I am? And I completely agree with you um, that the notion of social capital the fact that i am very privileged in my position i'm very privileged in my you know the life i can have gives me a social capital and a resilience that may not be available to others and i and i hope that people through the storytelling i do with with others like andy sampson my old school friend the the horrific racist cases that i talk about that's this is my story this is how i feel about britain it doesn't mean this is how Black and brown people should feel about Britain. Black and brown people should feel about Britain as they want to. It's up to them.
3: But I think it's interesting that you say in the book as well that the decision to leave the European Union might go some way towards solving the issues of race and identity than anyone had imagined. And and, and I... I wondered how how you thought that might manifest itself in the context of the man who gives the Zeke salute and you talk about him being an extremist. There clearly is a real polarisation in this country as a result of the Brexit vote. And there are many people who chose to remain who do, rightly or wrongly, think that those who wanted to leave... Are prejudiced and discriminate against the other, and some even think that they are racist. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, gr- I'm grading <laughs> the notions of prejudice because to call someone a racist is a pretty serious thing. Um, so, I, you know, I wonder how you think leaving might might help to to kind of heal some of the, th- the really difficult, potent issues that race presents this country with.
1: I think the main reason is we can see the fox. I think that for many years we have not had the open, transparent conversation we need to have about the type of country we want to be because it was always confused by this notion of we've got open borders. We, You know, it's, and that's a disgrace. We could never get into the actual discussion of who we are because of that sort of big elephant in the room. And I think that... You know, if and when that is removed, the notion of free movement, that we can have a proper conversation about uh, who we are without that huge challenge, which made the conversation at times almost impossible. And I think there's a second point. If you look at a country like Scotland, which has net emigration, Uh, their attitude towards the notion of we need people to come here to support our economy is very different from England, where the narrative is about we're far too crowded, too many people come here. Now, if the result of Brexit, which is, of course, likely, is fewer people come here, then we may realise with an ageing population, with our health needs, with just the brute facts of economics, we need people to come here. Now, wouldn't that change the tone of our debate about otherness, about welcoming, about who we welcome and why we welcome people here? I think that's what I mean by it could have an ironically positive effect on the debate. I suppose I have faith, Razia, I have faith in human nature, ultimately. I, that I, I read that in the that book, That the extremists sure. won't win. Yeah, I'm an optimist.
3: Yeah, you I are. An I think it's a book full of hope, which which is uh, which is a great thing to to read. But I also wonder but Razzie, whether I'm
1: glad you test me on these things because I think you're right to. And when I've done events and all lots of things, I think you're absolutely right. And I don't want this to seem some kind of Panglossian thing that doesn't understand the hurt and pain that many people of color suffer and carry in this country. I
3: I wonder whether whether you know you talk about the elephant in the room. I. I... It occurs to me that the elephant in the room has always been that this country has not really confronted the the two way street that exists from having been at the head of an empire. Absolutely. And that, that makes it really problematic, you know, and and it's, it's it's a similar thing across the pond in the United States. You know, you, you, you see again and again the fault line of race emerging, whether it's in young black African-American men being shot by police officers in the back uh, and the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement or the manifestation of it in culture with Toni Morrison writing, you know, books about, uh, you know, dedicating them to the 60 million. You know, I, I just think that there are certain things that happen in the history of a country that need to be confronted and they often are not. And then something like the Steve Lawrence... Incident happens or another person is killed and another person is killed and then we feel this need to assess. And I i don't, I don't, I'm not convinced and the reason I'm not convinced takes me to another anecdote in the book. Inside the BBC, a colleague of yours says the most appalling thing to you Um and in the context of it, I, I, we should talk about the context. The context of it is, the, you know, the British athlete Linford Christie, who is uh, facing charges. Actually, I can't remember what the charges were. Was it fraud it was over, or...? No, No, it was
1: over um, allegations of drug taking. Drug He taking was cleared.
3: And yep. he was cleared. And the judge mentioned his lunchbox.
1: Well, he asked what it what was. What it was, which was is so what humiliating. Is, what, what is, is Linford Christie's lunch,
3: lunchbox? lunchbox yeah. and, and so... You know, the, the 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 anecdote for me was so, you know, you and I both work for the BBC. This is a, you know, a cultural establishment at the heart of this country. And a colleague of yours says something deeply derogatory. It's a racial slur about your cock. Now, I... I wonder, you know, you're a senior person at the BBC. Is the person still working there? You know, do you feel that they should? Do you think that there are things that you could do that will change the culture, that will prevent somebody like that saying something like that ever again? I mean, I I was horrified by that.
1: These are really difficult areas. And also, it's not always your battle to have that the victim doesn't need to be the warrior. And things happen, and things happen whether they're in a school playground, in a place of work, um, uh, and it's what people sometimes have to put up with. Our responses aren't always the right responses. But, again, I am not going to be defined by what other people say or do about, you know, who I am or what I am. Um, And that... It is. It was a. It was a most amazing moment. I. I was astonished um, uh, that it happened, but it's the thing that you put up with. And maybe my generation is different from my children's generation, and from the young, you know, people who are younger than I am. You put up. You get on. You show that. You know. The, The content of your character is more important than the colour of your skin, as, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King famously said. And you get on with it. Now, people may criticise and say that's not the right approach. But as I say, this is a memoir about me, about some partially my story, actually a lot about my mother's story, a lot about my father's story, a lot about identity. And sure, there are things in the book that might make people feel that's not the right response. That's not what should have happened. Oh but it's not or, about or, the response. Or, or or that's or he or he should have done something about that. I didn't. Uh, I got on with my work. I got on with my life. I don't I'm not defined by what some people may think. I don't think he meant it maliciously at all. He meant it simply as a joke. Now of course you know <laughs> he needs to have a think about that. But and I'm in a senior position in the BBC, uh, and I can frankly ignore it. Um,
3: uh, Except that I think it's really interesting. Of course, hmm. you can ignore it, and the brickbats that many people, you know, hmm. myself included, we, you know, we take right. It's I understand why you're saying that, but yeah. but when you're when you're writing a book about the the place of race in the country that you call your home, the country that you have embraced. Um, and completely and utterly accept as your home. The, the kinds of microaggressions or racisms that exist inside workplaces, in social interactions all the time, are, aren't they not, an indication of a, a, a country deeply ill at ease with the other?
1: No, I think so. OK, I, th- I can hear what's coming through now. I think, Reza, you have a different experience from mine, and that's perfectly great. My experience of this country is much more positive. Um, yes, you're right. If you string them all along from the book, there are lots of examples of, wow, did that really happen? Can, can you believe that? But there are hopefully lots of stories of fun and joking and messing about, just like any kid would or any you know, young adult. Lots of great things about growing up in this country. And I, I am not angry. Um, I am very glad to have lived here and been given the opportunities I've been given. The challenge is that we have to enable everybody of whatever background to have the opportunities they want to have. And that's where Britain has not progressed in a way that we expected it to. Mm. The microaggressions that I may or may not have faced and have faced are sort of, squeak against the big issues of identity and race in this country, and how do we get on as a country, and how do we allow people of whatever background to to fulfil what it is they want to do with their lives? Those are the big issues. the The experiences I had are nowhere near the experiences, the horror that many people deal with every day, and certainly um, uh, uh, the murders that we've touched on in our chat. And so I don't want to overdo my experience. You know, these things happen. What what I was trying to explain is that for people maybe like us, Razia, I don't know, and you as a woman is different again, these things just happen. I wanted people to understand what it's like being a non-white person and also that we don't always have to get up on on our on the pedestal and say that's, you know, it's just what we put up with. And I suppose in the end, sort of... Net-net, I am still hopeful, I am still optimistic, and I am not angry.
3: You, you definitely don 't come across as angry. I, I want to ask you because you 've said again and again that it 's a, you know, a memoir, but you, you touch very very quickly on two things that I found really, really fascinating um, that you don 't talk about the reasons why your parents marriage broke up, and, and I wondered whether you think that it has anything to do with the fact that they had come from such different backgrounds
1: I do. Um, I think the reason for that is that this is, although this is a story about my mother, um, she is still alive. And it. I didn't want to intrude or talk about areas. It's not her book it, it, in the sense that she didn't write it. And as I say in the book, that's a story that is someone else's story. And this is my story. Um, but I think I do talk about my mother uh, admitting that although there was no tension, there were cultural differences that she did not notice. And I think, again, it's about not having the vocabulary, the sophistication in the 60s and 70s. You know, she took my father on Bucket and Spade uh, holidays to Devon when he would quite literally be possibly the only black person for 100 miles. And I was the only brown kid for 100 miles. Now, that's, that's quite tricky. challenging. That's yeah. tricky for my father. And my father came to London. And I think, yeah, there were big differences. and and But they were... They, they they weren't differences where it was racism. It was just it was just a cultural massive cultural difference. And also, both my parents are quite revolutionary and were quite kind of go-getting. And you put two go-getters together, they only need to start diverging a little bit to be quite quickly quite far apart in terms of what they wanted to achieve in their lives. And I think my and anyone listening to this and Razia, you might know this as well. Immigrant fathers are often quite tough and they maybe expect their wives to be in a certain way. Now, frankly, my mother was not like that. My mother was one of those generation of radical feminist, uh, that almost first generation, not first generation, but the first group of women who battled for the legislation that we now Um, um, maybe not take for granted, but we now take advantage of, have the advantage of. Um, And I just think my mother and father were both quite radical characters, and I think that's probably more to do with it than the colour of their skin, although my mother would always say that she thinks, looking back now, in hindsight, my mother and father stayed quite friendly through their lives, through my father's life. He's dead, my mother's still alive. They say quite friendly, but my mother understood as she reflected talking to her about this book that she didn't make my father's life very easy because she just carried on being English and expected him to fit in. And I don't know, Razia, whether you've found this, I don't know obviously much about your background, because I haven't, I, I don't think, have you read a book? Have you written a book? yet? I haven't written well, a right, book. Well, you <laughs> need to write a book, I, I want to hear your story.
3: But let me ask you, the, yes. the, the, the other thing that I yeah. thought you, you, you glossed over, which I would have loved to have heard more about, and this is my opportunity to ask you, which is, you, you say that you've never had a serious long term relationship with uh, a woman who wasn't white, and sorry, I just hate the use of the word non white I can never say it really without thinking, hmm i don't know, don't know if I like that term, but a woman who isn't white and i and I wonder why you don't explore that because that to me is so much a part of being uh, a a man who has decided he is very British in a country that he has decided is his home and and yet you. Clearly, are also informed by the way in which people see you, which is as somebody who isn't white. And and I I wonder why you didn't explore that because I would have been fascinated to have heard your take on it because your friend says that it might have, have something to do with your your difficulty with status and power, and you you think it's got nothing to do with that.
1: No, well, no, not my difficulty. Uh, a difficulty he he says he said um, black people have around white women, the issue of white women. And I said it was just coincidence. I believe it was coincidence. I also think books don't need to answer every question. I don't need to, I don't need to answer every question. There's a lot of honesty in that book. I leave some things just hanging there quite deliberately. It's a little it's a note in on a page on its own. I deliberately do it not to irritate people, but <laughs> to leave it hanging there. For people I think I think a book with a bit of mystery is fine. Uh, a book which doesn't answer things is fine. Uh, and I leave it to people once they've finished the book and read the book to think about that and to have a question floating in their mind. So sorry, Razia, I'm not going to answer it now either. <laughs> but I leave it hanging there sort of deliberately as a kind of a point. Um, also, and and the other, in the that other, respect, thing, it's
3: deeply effective. So. Yes.
1: <laughs> and the other thing, Razia, as I say, as I say, with my mother and father's marriage, this is not a story where I own all the pieces. So to talk about it might have meant talking about things um, uh, which involve too closely the other significant relationships in, in my life and, and which they have not given permission to do. Sure. So I've, I've left it there because I didn't want to tread into areas which, are, which I don't have permission to reveal to the world.
3: I, I just want to pick up on one thing that you said about, um, you know, the, the, the victim doesn't have to become the warrior. Really interesting turn of phrase. I, I, I wonder what, what you what you think about the times when you have been the warrior? Because you were when you were a kid and somebody said a terrible name to you, you know, you were very happy to use your rather fancy brogues to kick <laughs> kick the crap out of them. So, you know, I you know, what happens to shift that? To to be much more at ease and and hang back?
1: I'm not sure I hang back. I mean I've been a I've been not a warrior, maybe, but certainly I I worked for the Equality and Human Rights Commission. I joined that. I left the media to go and try and make a difference in the world in in, in an aggregate sense, in a macro sense, to to join the regulator of equality and human rights law in in Britain. Um, What what, what is the moment that suddenly you do fight back? It can be all sorts, a confluence of reasons for sometimes you respond in a certain way and other times you decide I'm not going to take on this battle. I've got I've got more interesting things to do with my life than constantly be in in fight mode. And it doesn't mean that fight is replaced by flight. It's not flight. It's just I'm not going to bother with this. You might try and keep putting this crap on the table in front of me. And sometimes I'm just not going to bother with it. I'm going to carry on. And by carrying on, I can defeat you. And I think that's part of the way I have operated in life. Now, many people would say, and I think that is a very fair criticism, that I haven't taken on the battles internally, maybe enough in the places I've worked. They may think that I would say that I have done, that um, um, I've got to a position now where issues like culture and diversity are so important. I think I have a take on those things, which will help the organisation I work for now, obviously the BBC, in a in a senior um, position, um, and that it is important that senior um, uh, people of colour are in our big institutions, and that's really important to me. Uh, uh, but I can I can hear, I, you know, friends of mine who are you know black and Asian, you know, we will talk about this stuff, and you know, this whole argument about oh, you've you you you've sort of not quite sold your soul but you've, you've taken acceptance over fighting in some manner but you have your own fights in your own ways and also I think the point is all these methods are legitimate that I think is my point If you, if you want to fight every time and bring it up that is totally legitimate and the right thing to do that it's all about how do you self-identify and permission to behave as you want to I've decided to behave in certain types of ways. I think our generation were much more, I better shine my shoes, wear a nice suit, have short hair, don't frighten the horses. That was our generation. And of course, I am delighted that the next generation will be nothing like that. They demand respect as a right, quite rightly. I never had that idea, to be frank, Razier. I thought to myself, blimey, I'm working for The Guardian, or I'm working for the BBC, or I'm even working thank you. And yeah, that is, people can criticise that. And lots of people braver than me at my age have done lots more than I have. But I I hope I've done my bit. As I say, I left the media for a period, worked for the Equality and Human Rights Commission. I've been lucky enough to be the first non-white person in this job and this job and this job. Um, I'm I'm no role model, but at least, you know, it it, it, I have got into senior positions in the media. These are, you're right, these are difficult subjects, but I hope I have shown that um, uh, by sometimes parceling those microaggressions, those attacks into one corner and saying, I'm not letting you mess with my head, mess with my journey, get in my face, I'm going to ignore that and I'm going to carry on and I'm going to hopefully help this. Conversation about otherness change so that the next generation don't have to go through what, not me so much, but certainly friends of mine went through.
3: Kamal Lamond thank you so much thank for speaking you. to us. What are
2: you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing...